here at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. Today, we're joined by Paul Rockster and Bertie Bidgen from the Turing Institute to talk about their new pieces of research, which is really exciting. Uh, so first of all, do you guys just want to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about what you've been researching? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, as you said, my name is Paul Rocker. I'm a DPhil student at the Oxford Internet Institute, um, Oxford University in uh, social data science now in my second year um, but i'm also i worked as a research assistant for the Turing institute and i'm on the enrichment team kind of starting this year so um got a bit of a connection to both and my research interests are mostly in natural language processing and specifically in um, methods for detecting online hate speech and uh, my most recent work or our most recent work with people from the touring with Bertie, who's also here, um, was on kind of creating a suit of a functional tests for hate speech detection models. I think we'll talk some more about that later. First, I'll pass it on to Bertie. Awesome. And uh, yeah, my name is Bertie Vidgen. I'm a research fellow in online harms at the Alan Turing Institute, where I work in the public policy program. Uh, I'm also a visiting researcher at the University of Oxford, the Oxford Internet Institute, where I did my PhD. And I, my work mostly focuses on harmful online content, so hate speech, extremism, misinformation, and how we can develop technology to counter, analyze, and understand these challenges. One thing I just thought was really interesting is like your most recent project looking at sort of working out how to like actually measure and analyze hate speech. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you approach that, because I know, especially with sort of social media, that can be quite a difficult thing to try and do. Yeah. So it's an immensely difficult task automatically finding hate speech because of how complex and varied hate speech can be. And there's been a lot of effort put in, in academia and industry trying to develop models that, as I said, automatically detect it. Um, but so far, we were feeling that there was very little kind of clear and detailed insight into the actual kind of strengths and weaknesses of those models. So that's what we wanted to address with that work. So um, we had both been working, like our co-authors as well, we had all been working in this space for quite a while. Um, and historically, people were using a couple of benchmark data sets to test the quality of their detection models. Um, but they weren't really allowing people to understand in detail where the models had their limitations. So we tried as a kind of complement to that as a diagnostic tool. Um, we put together this suit of functional tests, um, which we called hate check to then give people um, in both academia and industry that are looking to develop better models an idea for what kind of content their models are struggling with, what kind of content they may be better able to handle. 
Um, but it all comes down to the fact that hate speech is such a complex and varied phenomenon that we just need to be very careful in, in kind of differentiating between different types if we want to understand uh, how models, AI models can be used to detect it. And that's actually what I was what, what I was going to ask is that how, what is for our listeners, what is that you are considering to be hate speech? We consider hate speech to be abuse against a protected group or against members of a protected group making reference to their membership in that group. So protected groups would be um, based on gender, race, religion, uh, those kind of characteristics. Um, so women, Muslims, Jewish people, um, also immigrants. Uh, those. This is kind of based on international legal consensus around this. Um, there's different regulations in different countries, but that's kind of the core of it. That's um, yeah, shared across countries. The the important distinction is between hate speech and kind of regular interpersonal abuse, where um, you can be very offensive, you can be very abusive, um, but it's not necessarily hate speech in this uh, in this sense. So. Uh, that's also a distinction that we try to make clear in this test suit that a model shouldn't just think that something like I hate you is automatically hate speech. But if it is, I hate referencing this particular group of uh, like, you know, a protected group, then that becomes hate speech. Um, yeah. And there's actually some really interesting debates in this at the moment. So um, there's a really open question about whether hate can be abuse against socially dominant groups. So where you have, say, men, white people, straight people, cisgendered people, it's a really open debate as to whether abuse against those groups should also be considered hate speech because they don't have the same social and historical legacies uh, of, of you know, wider uh, discrimination, prejudice, vulnerability in society, but they s still are really clearly well-defined groups, which are very important to the identity of those people. Um, there are also debates around sort of less fixed affiliations, such as military status, health status, homelessness. Should people who fall into some of those groups um, also be considered legitimate targets of hate? So it's one of those really interesting things where to build a really good AI system, you have to be incredibly clear on what it is that you mean by hate and what the limits of your system are going to be. And on like the idea of like the limits of the system, I guess, obviously, there's the example you gave, which is like, I hate X group, which is quite clearly like very explicit hate speech. But so one of the reasons I was interested in this is I was looking at um, when I was doing my master's, I was looking at sort of subtle language and how that could like create bias in reporting and things like that during the uh, representation of like terrorism. And a lot of that kind of comes down to more like dog whistle style language. So like someone's a lone wolf or they're a terrorist, depending on like their race. And have you, are you looking at explicit, like just explicit language, or are you also looking at sort of more subtle things? Or is that not really possible with the technology? In this particular piece of work, we were mostly focused on the more clear cut uh, cases of hate or non hate, where there is a clear consensus across platforms and kind of users for whether something is or isn't hateful. The kind of content you described is obviously very relevant um, when it comes to the kind of broader sphere of abuse and uh, there's certainly implicit hate as well that is less obvious maybe um in you know using clear slurs or being you know i hate group x but uh, in in this work we mostly focused on the more clear cut uh, 
cases. Uh, what's really important there is that we show that even with the really clear-cut cases, a lot of the models out there still can't detect it. You know, even when you have those very simple, very obvious statements, dehumanizing groups being incredibly hostile and aggressive and overtly uh, discriminatory towards them, and, and the models still can't pick up on that. So there definitely is a really important need to look at more subtle forms. And, and in other pieces of work, we've looked at that. We've looked at dog whistles, as you described it. We've looked at hate expressed through memes, which is often much more subtle and harder to decode. But to be honest, a lot of the commercial and state-of-the-art academic models can't even deal with really obvious stuff. So they've got a long way to go until they can start to look at those more subtle varieties as well. And I guess that part of that might come back to like the idea that often algorithms have an inherent bias within them. So if they're being made by people who might have some unconscious biases, then they could not pick up on certain things as a result of that. Yeah, I think uh, one thing we found in relation to that and in hate speech research generally is that the algorithms pick up on the biases in the data sets that they're trained on. So that's really the main avenue in which these biases enter the model. They try to learn from a certain data set which was labeled by humans for what is and isn't hate, they essentially try to learn that decision rule. And because those data sets are incomplete and because they are biased and because they are annotated by people who might have their own biases, for example, there's there's some data sets where it has been shown that essentially the same kind of hate against women is viewed as less hateful than uh, hate against groups based on race, for instance. So these kind of biases get encoded into the data sets. The data sets themselves are incomplete because they're usually collected from one specific platform at one specific time with a specific set of keywords. And those are then the biases that the models kind of pick up on. So there there can be kind of a bias introduced just by how the models are built, but the main um, the main input really is in this training data. And that's really where a lot of the issues that we see with the models today come from as well. How could you build a better, uh, like ideally, okay, let's imagine we're in an ideal world where people are still hateful. So not an ideal world, but better. But let's imagine you can make the data set um, that, you, that you would want. Would you want, like, for example, people from all sort, all different, um, countries for example because society is one of the main reasons for an unconscious bias or or would you um how would you build this data set yes so i would say it's it's not only a question of where the people are from who are annotating the data that's certainly one of the aspects but also just the completeness of the data set itself so just to have a like wide variety of different kinds of hate and non-hate in a data set that really helps improve the coverage of the models that are trained on them. Um, then, like once that is established, we can talk more also about the people who are making the distinctions between what is and isn't hate in those training data sets. And there, it's very important to recruit annotators from a very diverse pool. And in, in all our research, we've kind of tried to, to make that happen. But there will always be a certain element of, of bias in individual decisions. So another way to address that is to have more annotators look at each piece of content so that you get a more diverse range of, of assessments. Um, but ultimately, it's really a question also of just coverage in terms of having larger and more diverse data sets that help um, help the model learn these kind of decision rules. And, and another piece of work relatedly that, that Bertie led on, and maybe he can talk a bit more about, is also this idea that we train the models by challenging them, by essentially trying to trick them with content that is 
um, very clearly hateful or non-hateful, but that they might get wrong because they misunderstand the problem that they're trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing here is just reflects on sort of maybe where the field was five years ago, because hate speech studies and online hate speech research and use of AI to detect online hate is is actually quite recent. So this is the first really big paper was from 2012. You know, you're talking about a field that's less than 10 years old. Re interest has really picked up over the last two or three years, but that's when the field really started to develop. So you go back even a couple of years ago. And the way that people trained and evaluated models was just by, you know, taking a sample of data from Twitter, often using keywords or some way to try and increase the amount of hate, which sounds a bit odd, but the, the problem is that, um, there's actually not that much hate online, right? As a percentage of all online content, you're probably talking a percent of a percent. So if that's your data set, that's not actually going to be that useful for training a machine learning model. But people take this data, they get it annotated on like a crowdsourcing platform by people who are completely untrained and have no idea really of what hate is necessarily. And then, and then that's it. That's your data set. And there's just so many biases and limitations and problems. And I think the big shift in the last couple of years has been to think much more strategically about what data are we getting in? How do we design the data set? How do we get it labeled? How do we deal with the edge cases? You know, cause, cause most online hate or the, the challenge of online hate is in the gray area, is in the ambiguous content that we all have very different views on. Um, and the piece of work that, that Paul mentioned, um, is generating data sets dynamically. So as he said, you have a model, you have people trying to trick the model. And by doing that, they can really quickly identify the limitations and weaknesses of the model. So let's say it was trained on data only, which really only contained uh, hate speech against black people. That's a, that's a useful starting point, but you'll find that when you enter hate speech against women, against Muslims, against Jewish people, it's going to fail. That's great. You know, you can exploit the model weaknesses really quickly. It will then, you can retrain it and it can very quickly learn to get better at tackling those forms of hate. And if we keep doing that over and over again, well, very quickly, you've got actually quite a good model that's quite hard to trick. Um, and then hopefully it can actually be used in the real world to detect and tackle online hate. That's really interesting. So I guess, yeah, that's one of the biggest issues. And like talking about how the field has changed so much. Like I think I was obviously uh, talking about me looking at hate speech and that was sort of five five years ago now and even then it was like looking at social media was just becoming a thing to start considering actually that wasn't really something I looked at as traditional newspapers which if you should now look at that it would be completely outdated and ridiculous to ignore something like Facebook and Twitter so I guess it must be quite hard to kind of keep constantly up to date with like the new sources of hate speech and where they might be and like building retraining algorithms to look at new sites yeah, uh, maybe I'll just comment on this briefly, but it's 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 a big challenge because if you train a model, say, on data from Twitter, it's unclear that that model will then be any good when I apply it to Reddit or Facebook or Snapchat. I mean, especially when you've then got completely different media. You know, if it was trained on text, you can't apply it to images. It's just not going to work. Um, but there are so many differences in the platforms that you know, you're, you're going to have a lot of challenges that maybe could, Paul can talk about that. But I just, I just want to talk about the fact that this actually creates a much bigger issue in that it's very hard to compare how much hate there is on different platforms and in different spaces and how much the amount of hate is changing over time because our measurement tools have to keep changing. So if the way that you're measuring something is constantly changing, you can't really compare like for like. I can't go, oh, look, you know, 1% of content on Facebook is hateful versus 0.1% on Twitter because I'm measuring completely different things with a different tool. Um, 
And that's really, really difficult for policymakers, regulators, civil society to try and get a handle on how big this problem is and when it's peaking and, and how different, uh, how effective different interventions are. So it creates a lot of downstream challenges as well. And maybe to add on to that, I think there's another issue that almost precedes this consideration of different platforms being different in terms of, you know, the prevalence of hate and comparing between platforms, which is just one of data access. So it's very, very, um, it, it varies a lot by platform, how much uh, data researchers can actually access to look at these questions, to analyze the prevalence of hate, for instance. And um, some platforms are, are very private with their data and very closed off. Uh, whereas, so Facebook is one example where it's very difficult to collect um, posts or comments from Facebook to, to then train maybe a hate speech detection model on. And uh, the other example being Twitter, which makes a lot more publicly available data accessible to researchers. But that has also led to, then to the fact that most research has focused on Twitter and, as Bertie has said, isn't necessarily super transferable to other platforms. So um, there's really, like, just from a research perspective, it's it can be very difficult to get access to the kind of data that you would need to, to truly get a sense for how much hate there is on a platform like Facebook um, because that data is so closed off. It's quite ironic because what we've heard about Facebook is that <laughs> privacy is not very <laughs> respected. Yeah. There was a big change after the, <laughs> the Cambridge Analytica um, scandal where they were they started to be a lot more restrictive and i certainly don't want to make it sound like you know there aren't good reasons to be very private about your users data like um, yeah, of course of course you know twitter handles it in a way where public posts are that are publicly accessible can also be accessed by researchers and that that makes sense i don't think anyone's uh, that, yeah that that doesn't violate anyone's privacy rights but if facebook decides to not make this data accessible they there are reasons for that as well. Um, just from a research perspective, obviously, uh, having that kind of data access would be important to truly understand the phenomenon as it's happening on, on the platforms. It always has like two sides of the same coin. Um, what about choosing platforms that are more, I don't want to say famous, maybe infamous for the promoting hate speech, for example, uh, Parla? I think that's the one that was very prominent. Um, is this something that you would look at or would it be a biased sample of data set? So yes, yes to both in a way. Um, so it's absolutely something that has been researched. Um, so there's Parler, there's Gab, there's 4chan, 8chan, and all those different uh, platforms, which, as you said, are infamous for the amount of hate speech. Uh, that is hosted on them. And uh, they all market themselves as kind of quote unquote free speech alternatives to the mainstream platforms. But in effect, that often means just that there's a ton of hate on there. Um, and on the one hand, that's interesting from a research perspective, because we see, you know, we, we don't have a lot of the kind of small sample issues that we might have when we try to essentially find hate on Twitter. Um, but on the other hand, as you alluded to, these platforms also have very particular user bases and they use a very particular language uh, in, in those communities that doesn't easily map onto the language that might be used on other platforms. So, you know, the, the memes that Bertie mentioned on platforms like 4chan or 8chan are very particular to those platforms. So we can maybe understand hate on these platforms fairly well. But the question is, how much do we are we able to learn from that about hate in, in, in the bigger um 
on the bigger platforms. Yeah, and um, you know, the the big challenge with hate speech is that most of it's not illegal. Um, like not even close to being illegal, if we're being totally honest. That the law is notoriously badly formed and and thought through in this space. And, and the law commission has, has actually had, I think, two consultations in the last year to try and um, improve the law around online hate. So we're mostly dealing with content that is down to the platform's discretion whether they want to get rid of it. Now the government has just announced the online safety bill, which massively in- increases the. Uh, the amount the platforms have to do to inform their users of their terms of service, to develop those terms of service, to make sure they're being enforced uh, in an appropriate way. But nonetheless, if a platform says, look, we are explicitly a free speech platform, we will only get rid of the very worst content that we think leaves us um, open to legal challenges, then that's their decision. And that means that a huge amount of what we most people would consider hate speech is going to be left online. Um, And that, of course, makes it really interesting to study. So when you look at these niche alternative platforms, there's a lot of content and a lot of data that you would never be able to get from Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. But from a social perspective, it's a real problem because these are still spaces on the web that people can go to and it can have very harmful effects. I remember uh, I was reading your blog post, actually, that you wrote for the uh, Turing website about um, steps that social media companies could take to reduce hate speech and going to the, I guess, the idea that language that is socially unacceptable isn't illegal and so it is at the discretion of these companies and I think one of the things you would like if you could talk about some of the things that you were saying that you think would be good steps for places like Facebook to do to kind of limit this and maybe some of the risks around that as well yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing that we really need now is to, is to have more appreciation of the harm that's inflicted on the moderators. That's that's the thing which we just don't talk enough about. Uh, and there was actually a bit of an expose in the BBC a couple of weeks ago about uh, a moderator who worked for an outsourced uh, outsourcing company who then ultimately works for Facebook to moderate content. And that's the business model of most of these platforms. They don't moderate the content themselves which is understandable. That's not their core business. Their business is to develop an awesome platform and to get people engaged. But they outsource a lot of it. And that's a real problem. So you've got a lot of workers who are not very well paid, who are not given a lot of support, who are given really difficult targets to meet. You know, a lot of it is sort of how much content can you get through in as short a time as possible. Um, and they're, they're the ones who are keeping the internet safe. Um, I mean, you know, AI has a lot of problems, but if we can use AI to replace people who are then being exposed to huge amounts of harm from reviewing this content, that has to be a good thing. Or at the very least, if we can use AI to augment and supplement what they're doing to improve their work. Um, so I think that's that's a really important thing that we have to think about. I think the other thing is to recognize that the, these issues are all tied up with commercial concerns. And that's in a way why maybe there hasn't been as much action on hate speech as we'd like to see. Every platform does everything separately in silos. But it's a social problem. It's a societal challenge that we have online hate. And we all bear the costs of having that content online. So yes, the platforms should be paying for it because they're the ones who who make all the money of having these platforms. So I think they should be funding it. But we need to be way more collaborative in how we approach the problem and have much more platforms and academics and government and civil society working together to build effective solutions. And at the moment, we just don't see that. And it really is holding back the field and holding back our ability to make better models and to address all of the weaknesses that we've identified in our recent research. I also want to ask whether hate speech is in itself an evolving um, concept. I mean, the things that are considered to be hate speech is evolving because, as you said, this is a field that started very recently and there are things that are considered hate speech now that wouldn't be considered 
um, hate speech uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Um, so this means that also um, it probably in a few years from now, things that we right now don't consider to be hate speech are probably going to be. Um, so I guess the algorithms also have to have some adaptation to the ev evolution of the data set. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so it's it's really at multiple levels that we would expect this change to happen. So as Bertie has said, right now we're in a situation where there's the legal reality that's defined by the governments. There's the kind of practical reality on the platforms that each platform sets in stone with its community guidelines, and that differs between platforms quite a lot. And then there's also the kind of academic definition that that we use in our research, which we try and align as much as possible with those other um, definitions. But we would, of course, expect all of those to change as society changes, and we have seen changes in this. Um, the logical consequence of that is that we will need to constantly retrain the models. So um, that is a necessity, not only because the things change that we would consider hate, but also hate changes. So hateful language changes quite a lot. And um, with the COVID pandemic, for instance, we saw a market increase in hate against uh, East Asian uh, minorities or East Asian uh, populations. So for models to recognize that kind of hate, they needed to be retrained with the kind of hate that then suddenly started appearing. So, so this really is a constant process and not a problem that can ever permanently be solved. Um, it, it will require kind of adaptation over time. Yeah, and actually, just just a shout out to that. We uh, we identified that there there wasn't any model really which was tuned to detect East Asian prejudice and xenophobia because it just hadn't been seen as a big issue before COVID. So we did actually go and create a model, and that's that's available online if anyone wants to read about it or use it. Uh, I also wanted to do a little um, shout out for another piece of work we have ongoing ongoing at the moment, which is looking at hate speech expressed involving emojis. And there's a student at Oxford, Hannah Kirk, who's who's leading on this really exciting project. Trying and understand how emojis are used to express hate and how this exposes all sorts of limitations in the AI, because most AI systems have not been developed to take into account emojis, or at least not in a meaningful way. So it's a very easy way to trick to, to trick the models. And there are some very simple things you can do. You can swap out, say, the verb. So instead of, um, you know, I want to stab a particular group, you use the stab emoji. Instead of the group in question, you use emoji to replace that. There's lots of other ways that emojis can be used in much more semantically complex ways to change the meaning of something. Because if you have, say, a sick face at the end of a particular statement, it might give it a very different resonance to, say, a heart or something more positive. So, you know, and this is something which, to our knowledge, no one's really looked at before. There's one paper that came out earlier this year, which sort of, you know, said, look, this is something the field needs to think about. Um, and that's a huge part of how people communicate online that just is not being addressed in the AI and in the research. So there's, there's still a lot of very sort of big challenges that we can address and new things which are constantly coming up. Maybe on, on this subject of kind of gaps in research that, as Bertie said, there are many of one uh, other one is that just in terms of the coverage of languages that these models kind of uh, are trained on to detect hate in. Um, most research, the vast majority of research has focused on English language content. 
which reflects kind of academic realities. A lot of this work is uh, kind of happening in English language, and there needs to be an understanding of the content. People can kind of understand English language content, um, no matter where they're doing research, or at least in most places that they're doing research. But the consequence of that is that we know much less about hate in other languages, and that the models that we have for detecting hate in other languages are much less developed uh, than than the models we tend to have in in English. Wasn't that actually like a really? There's been quite a few examples where that has caused serious issues for social media companies, specifically of removing hate con- content. Like, was it? I think most recently with the Rohingya genocide, where a lot of hate speech wasn't removed, that was sort of accelerating what was happening because it was in it wasn't in English, so there wasn't like the tools to kind of necessarily detect it as quickly and remove that content. And I know it's happened other places as well. Yeah, and this is really a question of scale. Is that um, so? We've done a lot of research on the impact of terrorist attacks on online hate, and what you see is that most of the time you've got this kind of, you know, unfortunately, this fluctuating but fairly low-level background noise, as we've called it before, of hate. And that's a problem, and that's definitely something we need to think about. But what then happens is you have a trigger event, like a terrorist attack, an election result, some other news events, the the other crises we've seen around the globe, and it just it just goes absolutely huge. It, it just peaks massively. We had you have acceleration rates of it doubling every four hours, every six hours. Those 24, 48 hours after a trigger event occurs. It's just the amount of hate is is truly crazy. And this is a real problem because the platforms aren't set up to deal with this. They're not ready. They can't deal with the sudden influx. So especially if you're relying on human moderators, which don't scale at all well, you know, to deal with more hate, you just need an equivalent amount more of a number of moderators. Um, you, you've got a real problem. Um, so, so this is one of the big challenges that we see. And the sort of the... The challenge of a lot of those other crises around the world is that they aren't in languages where we have well-established hate speech detection tools for. And so a couple, I think about a year ago, the amount of hate which Facebook was taking down each quarter massively increased. It went from like two or three million bits of hate speech each quarter up to, I think, 22, 25 million bits. And everyone thought, oh, my God, this must mean that Facebook's become overrun by hateful people which may well be the case, because actually we're not totally sure. But something that we do know happened around that time is that they expanded their language models to now start working in a far wider range of languages. So actually, probably what happened is that they took down a similar amount of hate in English, but now they have languages for, so now they have models for all sorts of languages that they just weren't looking at before. That again tells you like how far we have to go that even, you know, one of the most well-funded research groups in the world still are not covering all of the languages that they need to. Given that the hate speech is um, exponentially growing after a trigger event, uh, could it, could that be used to build a model either to predict that a trigger event has happened because the hate speech is going up, or on the other hand, by the by knowing that a trigger event happened, preempting that there will be an increase. I mean, it's it's the unpredictability and the speed at which they happen. But we we have certainly advocated that platforms have special measures in place for these sorts of periods, um, and we are actually launching. And I should always. Uh, call out on our, on our recent work, we are launching an online harms observatory over the coming months, which will hopefully provide real-time insight into the dynamics, prevalence, scope, impact of harmful online content, including hate speech, misinformation, and extremism. So we are hoping to build a tool which leverages lots of the research we've done into AI detection to give that insight and to help all of our stakeholders, so particularly policymakers, regulators, politicians, 
to have the evidence that they need to hopefully in, in very short timescales, even hours or, or minutes, be able to make the really crucial decisions um, for online platforms. Something that's an area, was an area of interest to me, so I'm going to ask about it. Um, in terms of like those sort of trigger events, like specifically terrorist att- events that um, spark an increase of hate, is that, thinking purely from, I guess, like an English Western perspective or American perspective, is that like across the board of terrorist attacks or is there definitely, if we're talking about there being an existing low level of hate, is there, for example, if there's a low level, existing level of Islamophobic hate on Facebook, for example, and then a Islamist attack happens and then there's a big increase, whereas is there less of that when it, say, it's a far-right extremist attack? That's actually a really good point. That We, we looked at uh, attacks during 2017 and we were looking at far-right attacks, uh, no, sorry, Islamist attacks, um, leading to an increase in Islamophobia. So the, the impacts were, how does that affect other forms of hate? We didn't look at that, we're not sure. Um, I think, actually, I've seen research which shows that whether it's Islamist or far-right, you see an increase because you you kind of kickstart that discussion. And so I think that was the Finsbury Park mosque attack. Um, and, you know, that that kickstarts the discussion. Or when it is an Islamist attack, that also kickstarts the discussion. And unfortunately, a lot of the people who are very vocal in that discussion are the people who are very hateful. But they are a minority. Even when we looked at far-right communities, lots of people in those far-right groups aren't triggered into being particularly hateful. Um, and I, th- I think it really is this problem of a very small number of people causing a huge amount of problems. I was also going to say that not necessarily having a far right attack is going to create hate towards the far right, but necessarily to instigate the far right to that usually are more vocal, not usually, but sometimes to be actually more hateful towards the people that actually suffered um, the attack. Exactly. Yeah. And this, these are all the kind of horrible injustices that you see online, where I think problems are compounded by the easy access that people have to a platform, which lets them speak their minds very, very quickly and, and reach a huge audience and not really have any any time to pause or any restrictions on what they're doing. Because I guess what happens when you have free speech online is that because people are anonymous, they find that for the first time, free speech sometimes is freedom of consequence from what they say because if they say it in person right there's going to be there is free speech you can say whatever you want but there will but you don't you're not free of consequences for from what you say while if you're anonymous online then suddenly you're like ah i don't face any consequences i can be as hateful as i want in this platform that allows me to be as hateful as i want yeah and we do see that platforms like telegram where this anonymity is kind of emphasized they are also a breeding ground for these hateful communities so we especially during the last uh, during the covid pandemic the kind of growth of hateful telegram groups uh, a big part of that was definitely because signing up to a telegram channel doesn't really require the same amount of detail or personal information that that maybe um something like a facebook account would require and then also telegram doesn't really moderate in, in the way that facebook does by now so there's definitely like a, there's a kind of demand for for plat for unmoderated platforms from people who want to spread hateful messages and they tend to migrate to those platforms that that let them uh, do well, let them get away with it, essentially, by guaranteeing them some form of anonymity and, and lack of moderation. I remember, uh, am I right in saying that you guys also look at um, traditional media as well as social media in terms of tracking this stuff? And if that is correct, as it is, it's interesting to know, like, is there, 
are they similar patterns with different extremes? So, um, like, do they have similar kind of reactions to events that obviously social media being like not edited in the same way, having like a much bigger response and more hate speech or is actually is there quite a big difference in the two that's a really difficult question and i think our research is much more focused on the online space so whilst we have some insight into this um i think we're we're slightly less well placed to to comment on it i mean there's a really uh really interesting paper um by a guy from uae i think called alex brown who did a paper called uh, what's so special about online hate and he, he sort of outlines that there are some really clearly distinctive things about online hate so it's instantaneous, um, it's anonymous, if you, as you touched on, and there's a few other features as well. And these do seem to separate it. Now, there's there's also some quite big activist campaigns around stop funding hate, which are trying to put pressure on the traditional media because their argument is, yes, we all talk about social media now, and that is a big problem because it's individuals. But we should also think about the role of uh, bigger media in um promulgating some of the ideas and social frames which then ultimately lead to hate and more serious acts but again the academic literature is is not actually that strong in this area because this is still quite a recent area of research so we don't have that really strong causal evidence to say look newspapers promulgating even implicitly hateful views say about migrants or muslims or other groups then leads to real world acts of violence and discrimination there's anecdotal evidence. There certainly are indications that it makes a difference and it makes sense. But, you know, we can't sit here as academics and say we've got that body of evidence to really firmly back that up. That makes sense. I think when I was looking at traditional newspaper, it was much more subtle than I guess online hate would be in that. I think a really classic example is like describing like a terrorist person and like someone who commits a terrorist attack and like their motivations and like if it was someone white, it would be oh, they might have mental health issues or they're a lone wolf or they had domestic violence things. And if it was someone who was Muslim, then it would instantly be like the only discussion would be about their like their religion. So it's like a completely different frame in how you're looking at what could cause it, even though there's probably a lot more overlap than that. Yeah, that, yeah. that's actually a really great point. And um, there was, I think I'm sure I saw a paper about like, why there aren't far-right terrorists in the media. Yeah, and it was just like, you don't see that as a discussion point. If you look at the official statistics, it's it's in many countries as much of a problem, especially in, in recent years. I think um, a third of recommendations to prevent maybe were for far-right people in the last couple of years, so don't quote me on that figure. Um, but you don't see it in the media. It's not described in that way. It's because, as you said, people with mental health problems who happen to believe these far-right ideologies. So there's a complete asymmetry in how we talk about those two things. Yeah, usually it's the father of four with a problem, blah, blah, blah. And then... You know, instead of it being the terrible things he did. It's like the society has pushed this poor father into being like this and look at that other people different from us that are just evil or or in the worst cases you see sort of implied justification kind of like well you know he was you know he lives in an area where there's lots of immigrants coming in and they're taking his job yeah and you're like yeah how's that how's that okay how's that but you know it it is part of the the discourse i can't remember what the phenomenon is called now but it's like when someone does something horrific you want to be like i could I could never do something that horrific, right? So you always try and distance yourself. So if someone is, if you're white and male and from a certain area and the other person is white and male from the same area, then your response is going to be like, oh, but they did this and I've never done that, so I couldn't do it. Whereas if there's a really obvious difference, like they have a different religion or they have a different race or they're from a different place to you, then you can kind of be like, oh, I'm different to that person because I'm just not that thing. So like, that's one of the reasons, like it's not, 
or not one of the reasons, but like an idea that it could be because it's just, you're trying to find the difference between you. So you just generalize the more different someone is, the more you generalize about that person. There's actually, um, and I can't remember the name of it. There's a really interesting concept in social psychology, which is an area that we draw on though. We haven't done any actual research that I would call as social psychology, but they, they talk about this fact that when you're talking about other groups, you often just homogenize them. You can't see, you don't really see them as like individuals with all the same variations and differences and nuances that, that we do for our own social groups. It's just like, well, they're all like this, you know, and even if that's not a bad they're all like this it's just a stereotype that you hold and it could be positive that's still a problem you know you're still in a way othering that group and you're not recognizing that they're fundamentally they're individuals and that there may be some group level similarities and that that certainly has also been shown in research but individual variation is much more powerful than group affiliation in most settings that can lead to very kind of complex forms of offensive language, even if it doesn't necessarily meet the standard criteria for what we would consider hate speech. So there's a there's a paper out last year, uh, one of the first ones to talk about reclaimed slur usage, which is also something we touched on in the hate check paper, um, but also uh, kind of linguistic forms like adjectival nominalization, where you, instead of referring to a group as uh, women, you refer to them as the women or the, like Mexicans are the Mexicans. So like by adding that uh, article in front of it, you create this distance and you kind of homogenize them as a group of people rather than referring to the, you know, their, their being Mexican is just an attribute. It becomes the defining characteristic. And, and that kind of language, as I said, it doesn't necessarily border or uh, cross over into outright hate speech as we would define it, but it kind of all puts, it, it kind of creates a breeding ground and it, goes plays into the same frames that a lot of hate speech does more explicitly which brings me to a question do you when you're gathering the data do you actually take into account the person that is that has um said the 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 hate speech because there are certain racial slurs that if are said by a certain group are quite offensive but if it's said for by the actual group of people is not yeah so so that's a really difficult challenge generally um with reclaimed slurs like the n-word being one example uh th that is just very difficult for an ai system to kind of distinguish between um, and we found that in our research we would argue that still there's some kind of contextual signals that will frame whether uh, like the dialect of the post uh, will usually kind of say quite a lot about the identity of the speaker. But as long as we don't have full knowledge of the identity and the audience, there's certainly contextual factors that we cannot account for. Um, that being said, not every mention of a homophobic slur is okay just because it's used by a gay person, for instance. So there are kind of limits to this. Um, it's, it's a very, yeah, it's a complex issue. And a related one as well is just intention. So you have this challenge of, well, what if someone says a hateful word or a hateful statement, but they meant it as a joke or they didn't realize it was quite as, as bad as it truly is. And you see that a lot with slurs where people will say, you know, I, I'm just using this as a joke. It's not meant to cause anyone any harm. I, I don't see how it is harmful. Um, and they just wouldn't see that as, as hate. And that, that creates a bit of a challenge because it's, it's actually quite straightforward. I mean, you've got people who just are prejudiced and they say they're prejudiced and then they say hateful things. It's like, well, that's quite an easy problem. Problem. 
Um, the real challenge is when people don't see themselves as prejudiced and they don't want to be prejudiced, but they also think, you know, but they're also happy to say things if it's offensive because they think that's okay. And, you know, and again, there are very open questions about that. And I don't think academics should be the ones to decide where we draw the line between uh, offense and, and hate speech. Um, but in practice, when we do research, we often have to. So it's it's very difficult. There's, there's really no easy answers in this space. And we're always trying to reflect critically on the decisions that we're taking and whether they're the right once. And is there like a consideration of kind of it's better to be overly interpreting of it being hate speech? You're like, it's better to take something that's like maybe meant as a joke, but um just thinking like, you know, growing up in school, like people would often say gay is like, oh, as a funny thing and not necessarily contextualize it in that way, but it would still maybe be offensive to some it would still be offensive to someone for it to use as like an insult. Um and to kind of assume that it's hate and to remove it than it is to kind of assume that it's a joke and potentially leave up something that could cause harm. Yeah, there's there's a strong argument for this kind of humor, humorous use of, of hateful language in particular, that it still does the harm. The intent doesn't actually matter that much when it comes down to how people are impacted by it. Because when you use a word like gay as an insult, even if it is a 13-year-old Teen, you know, a boy using it as a joke, it still does the harm um, that it would do if it was used more explicitly as a, as a hateful, in a, in a more explicitly hateful context. So from that perspective, there's definitely an argument that yes, this should be taken down, for instance, that intent in that particular case shouldn't really be the main consideration. But it does draw attention to this balance that every moderation system needs to strike between um, being careful to protect the people who would be harmed by that kind of language, but then also not necessarily over-moderating and just taking everything down that uses the word gay. Because, of course, there's you know a lot of uh, users of that word, in particularly in in completely acceptable contexts, like you know news articles, uh, discussions that we wouldn't just want an AI system to take down. So it's really that kind of balance that a good system will need to strike very well. And I guess it's also, we enter again on the, because I guess you guys are basically in the gray area, full of other gray areas about, about what is hate speech. Or for example, uh, something that we see a lot is the discussion of free speech and, and hateful speech being used by uh, comedians which is not necessarily for the hate speech itself to be hateful, but to make fun of the hate uh, hate speech itself. Um, so I guess you guys have gray areas within the gray areas within the gray areas of deciding. Yeah, I mean, the challenge is always like, I mean, like, wh wh where do you want to draw the line? And, and yeah. how confident are you in doing that? And there's lots of stuff where it's almost like, look, no one knows the answer to this problem. And the question again is, is is the comedian truly trying to undermine the use of that slur or, or hate speech or do they do they get some kind of relish from being able to say these hateful things and and you know in my experience i definitely don't want to generalize it's mostly like white men in their mid-30s who are speaking to the audience of white men in their mid-30s who are having a good joke about this so you know you, you've got to again think about the context and who the speaker is and who they're speaking to um, and there are definitely cases where it is totally fine. It's even a good thing, you know, and this is, this is actually a really important thing from the recent work we've done. You want to leave counter speech up, you know, you don't just want to have these very crude, ineffective algorithms that take down everything which could possibly be hateful in any form. You want to be much more surgical and be able to say, look, this is the hate, and this is very similar to the hate, 
but it's not. It's counter speech. It's really important, legitimate discussions about identity and social issues. And we act, we actively want to promote that content and not take it down. Um, but again, we don't see the models capable of being able to do that. Because sometimes humans can't even distinguish that, let alone expecting the machines to do it. Yeah, and that's actually a big problem. If humans can't do something, it's incredibly difficult to train a machine to do it. I guess, is this a wider issue of almost maybe relying on AI in the space? Potentially too much in terms of especially like companies thinking like, oh, if we have an algorithm, then that's cheaper than hiring human moderators. Is that algorithms are good at having defined yes, no answers. But in terms of being like artificial intelligence, like I can't, what articles are you talking about the idea of artificial intelligence saying that it's not actually intelligent in how we define human intelligence. It can't read nuance and context and tone and like identify what type of, like who someone might be and what they might mean by it. Like, you know, all this kind of like emotional intelligence clues that we get, like AI doesn't have emotional intelligence. You can train it to say, yes, that's bad or no, that's good. Um, and an over maybe is an over reliance of AI in this space. Would that mean that is there limitations to what AI currently can do? Basically, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. I would say it's not only a limitation for AI in this particular application, but for kind of natural language processing models more generally, because there's just a discrepancy between the kind of information that such a model will consider. In this case, you know, individual pieces of text, and it can learn a lot from these pieces of text. Like AI has gotten very, very good at understanding maybe just a, you know, a, a piece of a, a comment on a social media platform taken out of context. But a human moderator will be able to, you know, we were, we are able to read that piece of text in the context of maybe who has written it, who are they writing it for, uh, you know, the, the time of when it was written, the tone with which is, so a lot of signals that are kind of unknown to the AI that we still consider to make our judgments. So this kind of discrepancy, it's, it's really an issue it's for, in AI for hate speech detection, uh, but it's also an issue more generally because you hear a lot about these language models and all their like ability to quote unquote understand language. But what they really do is just get very, very good at it, recognizing patterns in these kind of individual pieces of text when maybe for a lot of applications, what we actually should be thinking about is more like the social identity and the social context um, of, of these uh, statements. I was going to add as well that um, you, you were asking earlier, like maybe what could we do if we had a huge amount of like money to, to address this problem? Like what would, we, what would we go out and do? And a lot of our research has shown that the problem is the data. You know, like most of our research has shown that if we can have better data, we can make a lot of progress in tackling this problem. But there will come a point when we reach the upper limit of what um, natural language processing models are capable of doing. And there are some forms of hate that I think we just will struggle to train models to, to address until more fundamental research takes place. And that's obviously happening all the time. Language models are always getting better. Um, but we will, you know, there, there will be certain limits that we will reach. I think we're a long way off from reaching them. I think we can still do a lot more just by having better data, better uh, fine tuning and training processes. But it's always worth bearing in mind that this probably will never be like totally solved by AI. What I was going to say is that this is a very subjective topic and AI is not even at a point where it can make objective decisions, let alone uh, completely subjective ones. So, um, it, uh, yeah, I think we still have a little bit to wait, which is good that AI doesn't have emotional intelligence. Can you imagine? That would be scary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also, 
Like, and again, we always argue that you want a human in the loop. No matter how good yeah. your AI is and how confident you are that it's working well, you always need a human to, to be reviewing stuff. You always need to let the users who are subjected to these AI decisions have an ability to, to challenge them, to question them and go, you know, I, you know, I, my, my content was taken down. You said it was hateful. I think you're totally wrong. Can you explain to me how this decision was made and why? And of course, the problem with AI right now is that it's not explainable. So no, they can't explain that decision to you. <laughs> Um, which, because we said so. Yeah, it's literally just like, well, we took you down and deal with it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was reading um, uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction uh, by Kathy O'Neill, which talks about this. And it's like the big, one of the biggest issues in AI and algorithms at the moment is this concept of it being like a black box. Like people buy an algorithm and then use it. But then, because they have no understanding of how it works. And it's very much like, well, the computer says this, so, and the computer must be correct. And there's not like an understanding of that. You know, it's based on data sets that could be biased or it's not in, it's not an infallible thing just because it's an algorithm. Like someone, some human made it and humans beings are not infallible. So therefore it's not. Exactly. And I think that's why it's so important to A, work towards more inherently explainable models. So to kind of open up that black box on the AI side of things. And there's a lot of work being done on that, although there's kind of contesting streams on what it means for such a system to really be explainable. Um, but then also to think about these systems, how they're used in practice as part of kind of a wider moderation system where there are, as Bertie said, humans in the loop, there's kind of human accountability, there's the ability to to kind of challenge the decisions and to push them maybe to then a human moderator that will have kind of an adjudicator. There's a tendency towards this. I think a general awareness that we can't just rely on one component, what just the AI um, to, to address these questions. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just important to keep in mind that there's always, there needs to be this kind of interplay. I guess we're fortunate we've done a huge amount of research in online abuse and online hate over the last two years. So, I mean, there are other things we can talk about. There's like the role of context. How do you take that into account? How do I take into account the, the previous things that were said in a conversation thread? Again, AI really struggles with that. So if everything else that came before was hateful, but your comment is hateful as well, but I can only see that if I know everything that was said before, like AI is not going to be able to pick up on that at the moment. People just haven't built systems to do that. Um, there's all sorts of challenges around multimodal forms of expression. So when I have a meme, which is an image and text, and the image and text by themselves are absolutely fine, but when they are put together, they express something quite hateful. That's incredibly challenging for, um, for AI at the moment. So uh, yeah, there's there's absolutely tons of things that we could we could keep talking about, but I, I think this yeah I think this covers all the all the things from our recent paper Hate Check uh, and also Learning from the Worst, um, which is the other paper we've, we've talked about a bit. Um, but yeah, Paul, what do you think? No, I agree. Maybe to pick up on one more point that we had mentioned earlier as well, this idea of kind of language change and the idea that we need to build models that are kind of inherently adaptable and we need to find efficient ways of retraining them constantly to pick up on kind of the newest forms of hate. Um, I think that along with, as Bertie said, the modality of the content, so image and video content, as well as the context in which the content occurs, and um, then also the language coverage of the models uh, on the research side as well, not only on kind of the, the industry side. I think those are really big areas that a lot of exciting research will happen in, in the next couple of years. Yeah, especially I imagine with adaptability and like the idea of memes as well, like so, so much of stuff just isn't offensive as a, as an image. Um, was it Pepe? It's like Pepe the frog memes, which if you were to just look at it and not understand that it was used as a racist thing, you would just be like, it's a frog. But 
obviously actually the image has so much more context to it because of how it's been used that isn't necessarily an obvious thing that you can just look at a a meme and go that is hate or that is not hate because there's so much more layers to an image yeah and it's it is just inherently more ambiguous and actually something that we haven't talked about um is is the fact that detecting hate is really challenging when people want it to be challenging there are people out there who are being hateful and they're trying to avoid detection or they're also slightly like it's a bit of trolling like it's a kind of game that they like to play in of sort of what can i get away with saying which will pass your filter um and that's a really big challenge as well. So people using coded language, you know, they'll swap out identity terms with other generic terms. They'll misspell things intentionally. They'll use memes and images and emojis and all sorts of subtle ways. I guess we haven't talked about that in a way because even though that gets quite a lot of academic attention, we know that in practice that's a very small minority of people who are trying to do that. The, the real challenge at the moment is just people being hateful, not trying to get around the content moderation filters, but still we struggle to detect that content. Um, but yeah, Pepe the Frog was a great example where in, intrinsically there's there's nothing about it. And I can't remember the name of the sign. The sign of, I'm, I'm, sick, I'm showing you on the image, but maybe someone knows what this one is. It's like the OK hand. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. OK sign that became the white power sign. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, if you don't know the context in which it's used, you never detect it. At the same time, probably 99% of uses of that symbol were not hateful. So if you just took down all of them, you you know, that, that would be a very, very bad strategy. Um, so it's, it's really complicated. It's definitely such a fascinating area of research. And it's going to grow so much over the next few years, just as like, obviously, social media is becoming more and more dominant and yeah, hate on social media is such a big issue. Um, but thanks. So thank you so much for coming to talk to us about your latest research. And just as like a sort of a final thing, you could let um, listeners know where else they could find you on Twitter, if you've got any social media handles and look up any more of your research in depth. Yeah, thank you, uh, Bea and Rachel, for having us. Um, uh, yeah, it was great to talk to you about our research. The two papers we most talked about, as Bertie said, were Hate Check and Learning from the Worst, if you want to find those. Um, you can also find them on our Twitters. Uh, my Twitter is Paul underscore Rotger, R-O-T-T-G-E-R. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter. My name is Bertie Vigin. I think I'm probably the only Bertie Vigin on there, so don't worry about spelling. Uh, best place to go as well as Google Scholar, if you actually do want to look at some of our research. We've, you know, it's mostly just things on hate speech and abuse. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for having us. This has been really interesting. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Cheering Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jamminson.bandcamp.com.